This is Neil Erwitz. I'm the Director of External Relations here at the Center for a New American Security, and we're here today with Alan Goldenberg, the Director of our Middle East Security Program, to do a recap and an assessment of President Trump's first overseas trip, in particular the Middle East leg. Thanks, Alan. So let's uh, do this chronologically. Let's start with Saudi Arabia. Um, how did the President do there? I actually thought Saudi Arabia was probably the strongest piece of the entire trip. You know, from a visual perspective, it worked well. Except for the orb. Except for the orb. <laughs> but I think even the orb was was something that worked for the Saudis, at least. It may, maybe might have been a little weird back here at home. Um, but I thought you know, the sword dancing, there were a couple of sort of comical, funny things. Uh, you can give the president a hard time for a lot of this stuff, but this is something that he's doing to ingratiate himself with a partner, and I think ultimately is is a good thing. And sure. I think the Saudi the Saudis, for a number of reasons, Trump was on friendly ground. One is these, you know, the Saudis relate well to him. The mix of family and business and politics is something that's how Gulf countries conduct their work. Uh, so, you know, you can sort of joke about it, but the reality is it makes them relate to him better. Um, from a policy perspective, they're where he is on Iran. Uh, they also had a pretty difficult relationship Namely, with the president. They are, they are very uh, counter to Iran. Yes, they, they, they would like to see the United States take a harder line approach on Iran. And they think that the president did that with his statements. We'll have to see about action, because statements and action are two wholly different things. And this, I think, is the biggest question that comes out of the Saudi trip. Uh, is, you know, there was a major arms deal for $110 billion, major economic agreements, openings of new counterterrorism centers. All the visuals were great. But now comes execution. Which is tough when you've left so many slots in the government yeah, blank. That's what I was going to ask. Do they have the horses to, to do the work at this point the, in the Trump administration, I mean? Um, look, they have a lot of very capable career civil servants who can do a lot of this. But you need senior political appointees who can drive some of these things and drive the agenda of the presidents. And Jerry Kushner can't do it all. He yeah. negotiated these many of these agreements, but now we're going to get into detailed implementation. If Jared Kushner wants to be the guy who manages the Saudi-U.S. relationship, and that's all he does, he'd be capable of doing that. Yeah, but, but there's no one person who can know everything about everything. Exactly, and I think that's the issue. And so I think the message in Saudi is very good first impression. They are very happy, but we'll still have to see how this actually works out. And how about the uh, Israel leg of the trip? So Israel was a little more mixed. I think overall, again, the visuals were good. And I was actually there the same time that the president was there, oh. which was convenient. Um, though I managed to avoid Jerusalem while yeah, he was there. I was about there. to say, from a traffic standpoint, it was decidedly yeah. inconvenient. Yes, and then, so <laughs> I meant sort of limiting where you could be, when you could be, based on the president's schedule. But he's only there for 24 hours. And the trade-off, the positive of all the vibes you get, of people just really reacting and seeing it firsthand, I think is worth it. So it, it was total accident, but it was great, convenient, and interesting. Uh, and I'll say what I sensed there was this combination of enthusiasm and angst. Enthusiasm because publicly he did the right thing with the Israeli public. His visit to the Western Wall, which many people thought could be really controversial, was actually very well executed, didn't step in any political traps there. Uh, his his speech hit all the right tones with the Israeli public. Uh, and so, from one perspective, a very successful trip. On the other hand, there is this undercurrent of angst. The angst comes from a number of different places. One, Trump has said he wants to restart Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations. So you have Prime Minister Netanyahu, who 
who was very excited about Trump and had a difficult relationship with President Obama and would like to have a better relationship with President Trump, but is not in a position politically to make major steps towards the Palestinians and is very nervous that he's going to end up in a position where he has to choose uh, between the President of the United States and his own political situation. And it's one thing for him to have a bad relationship with Obama. If he has a bad relationship with Trump as well, it will hurt him politically. It becomes time. about him, not about uh, the president's. Exactly, exactly. You know, full, you know, you can explain away one bad relationship, but not another one, especially not with the President Trump who came in speaking so positively about the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, and where people expected him to be so, so far to the right. Beyond Netanyahu... Uh, the far right wing of, of his coalition, Naftali Bennett, you already see them criticizing Trump and starting to snipe at him in public. Uh, and so they're worried about where this is going in terms of the negotiations and whether they're going to be asked to do things for the Palestinians that they fundamentally oppose. The Israeli left and center welcome the president's interest in, in peace negotiations, but are more wary of his overall worldview. You know, they're much more comfortable with somebody like President Obama and with Democrats generally in the United States. And then you've also got the security establishment, which is anxious because you have this deep U.S.-Israel relationship on security, and Trump seems very unpredictable to them. The, the incident with, it was interesting, you know, the leaking of the inte Israeli intelligence to, to Foreign Minister Lavrov. Look, when I was there, I heard across the board the relationship is too important. Security cooperation is too important. So we're not going to see a fundamental shift in the relationship, but also angst that yeah. this could get out. Yeah. We're going to keep working, but please don't do this again. That's exactly <laughs> sort of the perspective uh, that came across. Uh, the other was the $110 billion Saudi arms deal which traditionally, when you do a deal like that, we have this thing called the qualitative military edge, ensuring Israel maintains its military superiority over the rest of the, of the other, all the actors in the region. And anything the United States sells to the Arab states, it balances with things it does for Israel to ensure that Israel maintains that military superiority. And so it was surprising for the Israelis to see this ma massive announcement with very little socialization. Now, that announcement still in the very early phases. It's not clear what will actually be in this arms deal. Some elements are known, some are not. And so there's still plenty of time to have those discussions. But again, what you heard from Israeli security officials is we don't have anybody to have those discussions with yeah. because those people haven't been appointed. And so that's this yeah. double layer in Israel. Which brings me yeah. to, I think, the most important uh, yeah. question. Okay, we've had the trips. Yeah. What now? What is a good next step and what is a counterproductive one? Sure. So in terms of actually the most interesting news that I think will come out over the next few weeks, and we're not sh I'm not sure this will happen, but I feel pretty confident that Trump is going to manage to restart Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. First time since 2013-14 when Secretary Kerry in the process I was involved in had these types of final direct talks. And it's because the Palestinians usually don't come to the table unless uh, some kind of condition is met because it's politically costly for them to come to the table. So with Obama, they constantly demanded settlement freezes, prisoner releases. They were so worried that Trump was going to move the embassy and do all kinds of other things that were damaging to their interests that they dropped all those demands. And that's actually a moment of leverage, I think, that was, whether it was done on purpose or not, very well executed by the administration. My concern is... The president wants the ultimate deal, and so he's going to rush into these negotiations and squander this moment of leverage on just going directly to final status negotiations on really the toughest issues. So both parties are afraid to make him angry. That gives him leverage. He's got this opportunity. But 
it doesn't give them enough leverage to get them to make core sacrifices on things like Jerusalem and borders and security issues that have bedeviled them for 50 years, not longer. So it, it, it's enough leverage to get them to take meaningful steps on the ground to make the situation better. And that's where I'd rather see uh, the, new, the, the Trump team put their effort. But I'm worried that that's not what's going to happen. The president wants to go to negotiations, and that's where we're going to end up. And then we'll just set ourselves up for another failure. And those negotiations will not be about the little stuff. They will be about final state and state Exactly. Issues. That's what the president wants, the ultimate deal. Um, and so this, this is the, the big thing that worries me. The other one I'd like to see now is an articulated strategy on Iran, because we've had a policy review ongoing for months. The president goes to Saudi, he goes to Israel, he makes all the right noises for these partners, but just getting tough on Iran is not enough. You need an articulated approach and a strategy. You know, just getting tough without having any end state that you're looking for is a way to get yourself into yeah. an escalating war without any... And it doesn't really end. mean anything. Right. It doesn't mean anything, or it could get you just into, like, a, a bigger war without any plan for how to get out of it. And so what I'd like to see is a clear strategy that says... We're going to push back on the Iranians here, here, and here, and this is what we're going to do in Yemen, this is what we're going to do in Syria, this is what we're going to do in Iraq, but we're going to stay open to engaging with them and negotiating with them, and the end state that we're looking for is, you know, whatever that yeah. end state is, that everybody can live with in the region to try to end these civil wars. So that would be a strategy. Right now, we don't have a strategy. We just have a message that we're going to be tough on Iran. Well, let's talk again when these uh, end state negotiations begin. All right. Thanks, Neil.